Let's open in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're in 1 Corinthians 15. You'll remember that last week we studied the first eight verses of this passage, and we're going to study just the second half of that short section. Last week, we said that Paul was basically giving us a very succinct explanation of the gospel. He says, look, according to tradition, according to the scriptures, Jesus died on the cross for sins. He rose again from the dead. He defeated death. And then he talked about Corinth's response to this. This church here in Corinth responded by receiving the gospel, standing in the gospel, being changed by the gospel. Well, Paul is going to take all that happened in those verses and apply those things to himself. One of the things I love about the Apostle Paul is when he's writing these letters, he cannot resist when he brings up the gospel to bring it home to himself and talk about how this same gospel not just changed this church that he planted, but changed his very own heart. And that's what he's going to say starting in verse 8. So let's read this together. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Let's pray together. Jesus, we want this for ourselves. We want this gospel to leap off the page and into our hearts and to change us and to make us new and to make us look more and more like your son Jesus. So we plead that your spirit would do his work today and that you would teach us from your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we recently just completed our first membership class here at Columbia Presbyterian Church. We had 110 people join CPC as as new members of this church. And part of that process, which many of you went through, was to sit down with church leadership and to share your testimony. Because part of what it means to join a church as church leadership is to discern... Are these folks who are coming for membership really born again? Are they really believers in Christ? And one of the ways to find that out is to ask a person their testimony. How is it that you came to faith in Christ? So we got to hear over the course of several weeks lots and lots of testimonies. Now, testimony is really a powerful thing. It's not just, it's the story of what Jesus has done in your life, but it's not just something you use for church membership. And it's not even just something that you use to talk to a neighbor about Jesus with. If somebody asks you, hey, why are you so hopeful? Or, or how do you handle suffering in the way that you do? A testimony is a wonderful way to explain that. But those aren't the only reasons that we think about our salvation in terms of a testimony. Because stories have a powerful way of organizing our world. When we think about our testimony, when we think about succinctly saying what Jesus has done in our life, we're doing theology. We're saying, this is where I'm coming from, this is what Jesus has done on my behalf, and this is what he seeks to do in me, and all of that shapes the way we think about our Christian life. And so a testimony is a powerful thing, not just for our church and not just for our neighbor, but for our very selves to think about who we are in Christ. Well, we get the treat of hearing Paul share his testimony in 30 seconds or less. Did you catch that? I mean, he blitzed through his testimony and just very simply said, this is what Jesus has done. And his testimony has three parts. He says he's called by grace. He says he's standing by grace. 
And he says Jesus is changing him by grace. And I want us to look at each of those in turn and think about our own Christian testimony and how Jesus is shaping us. So let's, let's look at these three. The first one is called by grace. And he talks about this in verses 8 and 9. Last of all, he says, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Now, Paul says here that he is one untimely born. That is kind of a euphemistic translation of what Paul literally says in the Greek. What Paul says here is, I am like a stillborn child. Now, that's very awkward and shocking language. Why would Paul say something like that? Well, what Paul is after is to explain to us what it was like in his shoes before he was a Christian. He's trying to explain what kind of person he was before Christ changed him. And he's saying, look, friends, I was an absolute monster. Paul goes on to say that he's least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. But in other writings, he calls himself least of all the saints. And then elsewhere, he says, I am the chief of all sinners. Because before Jesus changed me, Paul says, I was a persecutor of God's church. In what I thought was serving the Lord, I attacked and vehemently opposed the church of God. And this is something that Paul is utterly, utterly ashamed of. Every time Paul shares his testimony in the New Testament, he confesses this fact for which he carries deep shame. He persecuted God's church. He attacked and opposed God's church. Have you ever heard a testimony in which um, the kind of details before conversion are relished? If you've grown up in youth group, you've surely heard this because we're a sucker for, for a testimony that has alcohol and drugs and prison sentences, and we hear all these gory details, and then the testimony abruptly ends with, and then I got saved, as if there's nothing to be said about the Christian life after drugs and alcohol. Or the same thing is true when you're hanging out with a group of Christian friends and somebody starts a story by saying, before I was a Christian, and you know it's going to be an awesome story because, you know, everything goes, anything's on the table. Um, as if there's nothing to say after this. Well, Paul is so subdued in talking about who he was before he was a Christian. He's saying, all I want you to know is there's not much to say. I opposed the church of God. I was an enemy of the Lord. And when he does that, when he almost belittles himself, he's not doing that out of, out of self-abuse. He's doing that to take the spotlight off himself and what could be this great celebrity testimony and he's putting it on Jesus. He's saying, look, there is one who can take a person like me. I wasn't just disinterested in Christianity. I was vehemently opposed to Christianity, and Jesus changed me. He turned me upside down and changed my life forever. If Jesus can do that for the Apostle Paul, who can he not do that for? What person in our life can Jesus not change if he can change a persecutor of the church of God? Is there a friend or a coworker, a son or a daughter, a brother or sister or a spouse that Jesus cannot reach down and change forever? No. And this spotlight is not on Paul. It's on the marvelous son of God who can do this very thing. He can change anybody. And we have hope that he can do that very thing because of his gospel. So whereas most of us tend to front load our testimonies and talk about the gory pre-conversion details, Paul backloads his testimony. He says, look, there's not much to say about me, but let me tell you what Jesus did in my life. He called me by grace 
And then secondly, I stand by grace. Now we said last week that the gospel is as dynamic today in the Christian's life as it was when we first believed, and that's what Paul is telling Corinth. In verse 1, he says, The gospel you received is the gospel in which you stand. And in verse 10, Paul says the same thing about himself. Uh, He says here, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Now, I realize when we say something like the gospel is as dynamic today as it was when we first believed, that can be kind of a quaint Christian phrase that we don't actually understand what that means, but we all nod when somebody says that and says, amen, brother. Um, Paul's going to tease this out and tell us one way exactly what he means by saying the gospel is doing something in me today. It's changing me today. And the one fruit he mentions this is this, Paul locates his very identity in God's grace to him. Paul is beginning to define himself by the grace God extends to him. Now that is absolutely radical and life-changing and brings a kind of freedom to us that most of us can't even imagine. I mean, think of all the ways every single week we find an identity that is not in God's grace. If we're a student, you are what your report card says you are. If you're an employee, you are what your position at work is or how much people appreciate you or what favor you have with the boss. If you're a homemaker, you are how well your kids behave or how industrious you are or how nice your home looks. If you're a human being, you are how smart you are or how thin you are or how popular or wealthy or self-made you are. All of these are ways that we define ourselves that have nothing to do with the grace of God in our life. I think we hardly even realize these badges of self-identity until they're pricked, until something happens in our life where we said, I didn't even see this thing before, but now I see it. A very small example in my life is, in this past week, we hired a handyman to come into our home to fix something. Now, I didn't realize this going in, but the second he showed up at my door, an idol started raging in my heart, and that's the idol of identity of being a competent person. Because when a man in his home has to hire another man to come in and fix something that that said man couldn't fix himself, I mean, that begins to expose something about me. It's like we're eyeing each other up and I realize I've failed and here comes the alpha male into my home to fix something. And this little idol starts to perk up in my heart. I didn't know it was there, but it's like this idol of competency is starting to rage in me. Well, then this guy gets to work uh, installing a bathroom fan And I realized, Julie's out, it's my day off, I've got the kids home, I want to get down on the floor and play with my kids, but then I also have this idol of being a hard worker. I don't want this man who's working in my home to just see me sitting on the floor playing with Legos, and so what do I do? I get up and I make myself busy, as if I've got a bunch of important things to do all over the house, so that this man will look at me and say, okay, he's busy too, I understand. That's why he's not fixing his own bathroom fan. If you would have taken me out to coffee and sat down with me before that happened and said, David, tell me all the the idols of self-identity that are lurking in your heart right now, I would have said, I don't have a single one. I mean, there's nothing that I identify myself with except for the grace of God in my life. But until those idols are pricked in my life, you better believe I begin to notice those things. And that's what's true with all of us. These idols are everywhere, and we hardly even see these things. And Paul is saying, you know what? Step by step, inch by inch, more and more every day, I'm beginning to identify myself with the grace of God. 
not my competency, not my hard work, but by the grace of God. Can you imagine the freedom that would come from that? That if you are a mom and your child melts down in public and you don't spiral into shame thinking of what other people think of you as a parent, can you imagine the freedom that's found in that? When you're working in an office and you get passed over for a promotion and you don't stew for months in resentment, can you imagine that kind of freedom when a handyman comes to your house and you can plop down on the floor and play Legos because it doesn't matter what he thinks about you? That is an incredible amount of freedom, and that freedom only comes in this gospel teasing itself out in our life. The things we're talking about here, this is graduate-level Christianity. Because when we first come to Christ, all of this becomes immediately true of us, right? We had an identity that wasn't in Jesus. We were lost, we were blind, we were dead in our sin, and now as a Christian, we're found, we can see we're alive in Christ. Our fundamental identity has changed. But to see this stuff begin to tease itself out in everything we do, in every relationship we have, that's something that God desires to do in us more and more and more. Finding our identity totally in the gospel. You know, last week, or Paul sees this define his life more and more because he says in verse 10, his grace toward me was not in vain. Because Paul is seeing his identity this way, he's able to see that this grace is an active thing in his life and it is not in vain. Last week we talked about there is such thing as a vain faith. It's faith that is wrongly placed. But Paul is saying there is no such thing as vain grace. There's no grace that God applies that doesn't achieve its end. That's that's kind of surprising for us because I think some of us think about God's grace like we think about handing a full cup of water to a two-year-old and telling them to set the table, right? If half of that cup of water makes it from the kitchen to the dining room and on the table, that's a good thing. That's a win. And we're kind of thinking, look, if half the grace that God applies to me in my life makes it and sticks to me, that's a win. That would be amazing because we're thinking, you know, there are so many ways that God wants to change me that I'm not changed. And that to us looks like misplaced, misspent, underrealized grace. It looks like vain grace, a grace that God's trying to apply to our life and it's just not sticking with us. But that's not how Paul is thinking about grace in verse 10 when he says, there is no such thing as vain grace. Grace is not always the change itself, but it's the road to that change. I mean, think about all the ways we experience God's grace, even when we don't see that very change in our life. The fact that we woke up this morning seeing the shortcomings in our life, that's a grace of God to us. The fact that most days or some hours during the week we want to change and be different, that's the grace of God to us. The fact that we know to whom to turn to find that change, the fact that we have one living in us who can change us, the fact that we have promises that say we can defeat and conquer this sin, we can live in this newness of life, all of that is a grace to us. Even if that very besetting sin hasn't changed yet, all of that is a grace There is no such thing as misspent or underrealized grace in our life. There is no such thing as vain grace. Is there a struggling Christian in our midst whom you cannot sit down with and say, by God's grace, you are who you are, and his grace toward you is not in vain? No, absolutely not. There's nobody for whom God is not fully applying his grace to, and we are receiving that and seeing it if we have eyes to see.
But truth be told, I think spotting grace in somebody's life is kind of like spotting weight loss. It's hard to see and believe it on your own until somebody walks up and says, hey, I noticed that too. That's what grace is like. And that's why we're encouraging a Christian community in which we are all up in each other's business. Because when that happens, when we do life group together, when we grab coffee together, when we take prayer requests from each other, we begin to see the small ways in which God's grace is being teased out in each other's life. That we can really sit down with somebody and genuinely say, Frank, when I first met you, you were a total jerk. And now you're just mildly a jerk. That that is Jesus' grace in your life. You can't do that on Sunday mornings. You can't do that during a coffee hour. You can do that when you mix it up and do life together and begin to spot these things in each other's life. I think that's why Paul, in almost every single one of his letters, takes time at the beginning of his letter, even if he's got hard things to say, to spot grace in people's life, to be a grace spotter, to say, well, you know what, Colossae and Corinth and Ephesus, I see faith, I see hope, I see love, and I thank God for that. He is changing you, and I see that, and I want you to know that I see that. That, that, That's Paul standing in grace and seeing himself defined by grace. So he's called by grace, he stands by grace, and last, he is changing by grace. I think some of us are worried that too much talk of grace uh, begins to create lazy Christians, right? If we tell people again and again and again, look, your identity is found in Jesus' grace alone. You are saved by grace, you're transformed by grace. It's not about what you do, it's about what God does on your behalf, If you tell somebody Jesus loves you the exact same whether you get out of bed this morning or whether you don't, aren't we afraid that they're just going to hit the snooze button and not do anything? I mean, aren't we afraid that too much talk of grace is going to have an adverse effect? The exact opposite is true in Paul's life. Look at what he says in verses 10 and 11. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe, God's grace in Paul's life is propelling him forward to hard and sacrificial kingdom work. How can it not? Jesus has changed him and transformed him. He is enamored by the person of Christ and he is moved to do hard and tear-filled Christian work. That's what he does. Later, Paul is going to go on to say, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we as Christians of all people are to be most pitied. How can he say that? Because he sees the world not in which we receive our most enjoyment and rest and reward in this life, but in the life to come. And so as Paul pictures his Christian life, he pictures a life of radical, pitiable hard work to serve God in his kingdom because Jesus propels him by his grace. Now, the way that hard work and grace fit together perfectly, the evidence we have of that, Paul gives us in two ways. First of all, Paul Paul acknowledges that his work is being done in God's grace. That's the only way that this work is actually happening. Even in his hardest work, even in the Christian's hardest work, we acknowledge that it's really God that's at work. We do not, as the Christian, have a Leah complex. You'll remember the sad story of Leah and Rachel marrying Jacob, where Leah was the less attractive of the two sisters, and God honors her by allowing her to bear Jacob many sons, and each son she bears Jacob, she begins to think to herself, maybe now my husband will love me now more. Maybe now my husband will notice me. Maybe now my, my husband will pause and recognize that I've given him this many sons. 
There is no Christian who needs do kingdom work and say, maybe now Jesus will notice me. Maybe now he'll take note of me. Maybe now he'll answer my prayers because I've served him so much. That doesn't exist in a Christian world in which God is achieving the same things he's working in us and through us. There's nothing we do as a Christian that we don't pause and say, you know what? I would never do anything like this on my own. This is only the grace of God working in and through me. I do what I do because of God's grace. I work hard because God is working in me. The second way we know that grace and hard work are going hand in hand for the Apostle Paul is because Paul is unconcerned about getting credit for what he does. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine truly doing something without desiring credit for that same thing? A telltale sign of whether we are working by God's grace or working to get God's grace is how we are seeking credit for that work. I tell you what, if we are working to get God's grace, we need credit. We need to check something off of a chore chart. We surely need people around us to recognize what we're doing because we need something back. We're working to get God's grace. You know this person who is dropping hints in their life that they are doing Christian work. Sorry, I'm late for our meeting. I was serving at a soup kitchen and things went out of hand and I, you know, I'm late to our meeting. I'd love to go out with, with you to lunch this week, but... My wife and I, we just gave over and above in our tithe, and and I can't do that. We're we're dropping hints because we're greedy to get something back, right? We're, we're We're not getting God's grace, and so we're trying to get it from other places. We want some kind of recognition for the Christian work we're doing, but look at what Paul is saying. He said, whether then it was they or I, so we preach, so you believed, it doesn't matter one bit who you were converted through. It doesn't matter one bit which church you joined or how your church grew. I'm just here because God has saved me and transformed me and is doing his work in me. If I show up an hour early and set up chairs, if I tear down, if I serve in this way or that way, if I follow up with this person and the pastor never knows, it doesn't matter to me. I'm not working for that kind of recognition. I am working before my heavenly father who is doing this work in me. It doesn't matter if I get credit from another person. Man, I tell you, that is a telltale sign that that person is seeing the relationship between the grace of God in our life and the hard work that we apply to the kingdom. We are walking in step with the spirit. This 30-second testimony here, Paul just distilling this, takes nine months of talking about Jesus and just makes it very practical in our life. Who of us as a believer cannot say we stand by grace, we've been changed by grace, and we are changing by grace? This is what Jesus desires to do in us. Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice in this kind of gospel. What a treat, what a privilege to know that that just because you've called us by grace, you're not done with us. You long to do more than we can ask or imagine. And so we plead for these very things. We plead that you would do your work in us, that we would stand because of your grace and that we'd be changed by your grace. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.